0: Hello. Good morning. morning. Happy Sunday. It's sunny. (laughs) As everyone who's spoken before me has just said, it's sunny. Woo! (laughs) What a beautiful day to gather together and seek the kingdom. So the last time I spoke, like Ben said, it was on the last Sunday of 2020. And on that day, as we reflected on the year, I asked the question, how are you? And maybe it's because I start a lot of conversations throughout the week with that question. Um, I just feel compelled to ask it again on a seemingly random Sunday in the middle of April. How are you? If you would, take a moment as we're gathered here to take stock of what you're carrying this morning. It feels like a sacrilege to ask you to close your eyes, but maybe it would help to close them or at least to let your attention rest on some of the beauty around us this morning. So just take a moment to notice, to notice that you're here today. Notice the events of the week, its burdens and its joys that you're carrying today. Just notice. And if there's anything that comes up that is troubling to you, perhaps take a moment to place it in the care of our God. God, we come before you today. Full of the busyness of our lives, our gratitudes and joys, and our worries and fears. We come to you at the close of spring break, or maybe the beginning of spring break, in the blooming of spring, eagerly awaiting more sunshine and warmth. We come weary and tired. We come hungry and thirsty and seeking good news and new life. We come seeking you. We thank you for being with us here and ask that we would receive from you what you have for us today and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We offer our songs and words and prayers to you this morning and ask that you would use them only to your glory. Amen. So as we proceed from Easter weekend, I've been reflecting on a question, really a small question, nothing major. Uh, What is the significance of Jesus' incarnation? (laughs) That is, what are the consequences or the effects of Jesus' birth, life, and his death and resurrection that we celebrated last weekend? And wouldn't you know, I'm not the first to have such questions. (laughs) In fact, I'm sure each one of us in our own way has wondered and pondered over the mystery of the incarnation for many, many years. It can almost take the form of a spiritual discipline of sorts, meditating on the life of Christ. And such questions and reflections have actually captured the hearts and minds of Christians since the very beginning of our faith. And it should come as no surprise to us that they arrived at many different answers, and the scriptures present many different images. The Christian traditions have offered many different answers to these questions throughout our history. So, this morning, we're going to reflect in community with the scriptures and the faithful who've gone before us on some of these questions. So in the scriptures, we find many voices, many metaphors and images and stories describing the consequences of Jesus' incarnation. And one such image is the unity of Christ with all creation and the utter transformation that this unity accomplishes for all creation, including humanity. So let's consider this image together. First, we're going to consider creation itself. Um, So throughout the gospel accounts, we are shown that all of creation is united to and transformed in Christ. Side note, we're going to be looking at a couple different verses. So if you're wanting to follow along, then just prepare nimble fingers. Um, If not, then I'll, I'll be reading them too. So first, let's go to the opening lines of John's gospel. So John 1. In the first sentences of the gospel, it says this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. These first lines form a parallel to the opening lines of Genesis, which read this. So hop over to Genesis 1 if you're following along. The opening lines of Genesis say this In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. John's Gospel opens as a parallel to Genesis, where a similar announcement of the Word of light and life occurs. But there's a difference, because where in Genesis God speaks creation into existence through the Word, for in and by and through the Word all things were made, in John's Gospel the Word and light was coming into the world. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, bringing grace and truth. John calls back to creation and says, hey, remember that? Something like that, a new creation, a recreation is happening here. The word by which creation was spoken into being became a creature itself, dwelt among us. And this changes everything. A new creation is taking place. The old has become new. The garden that the word spoke into being, the garden humanity tended, the garden God walked in, the garden that became wilderness and cursed ground, here the word is stepping back into it, into the wilderness. The word is born again from the cursed ground. And just like that, creation is joined by its creator in an intimate new way. And creation is transformed. All of creation is united to and transformed in Christ. We also find in scripture, the transformation of time itself So specifically, scripture shows Jesus inaugurating a new era of time. So again, back in Genesis, you'll see that God creates in six days, right? God creates such and such on such and such day and such and such day. And there's evening and morning, the end of the day. But God takes the final day of the week, the seventh day as a Sabbath, where God simply dwells in and enjoys creation God communes with Adam and Eve and tellingly on this seventh day, that phrase, there was evening and morning, the blank day does not occur. It doesn't conclude the seventh day like it does for the first six. So Genesis presents this seventh day reality of God's dwelling in creation as somewhat of an ongoing day, a day without end. And yet, as we know, the true Sabbath rest of the seventh day is broken through the serpent's deception only a few verses later. And while Israel is commanded to keep the Sabbath as a prophetic foretaste of the ultimate Sabbath reality yet to come, creation remains corrupted, disordered. Alexander Schmemann, an Orthodox priest and prominent theologian of worship, says this, but before I share what he says, I have to show you a picture of him. I'm showing visual aids so that we can know who's talking to us. I don't know if you can see this. This is Alexander Schmemann. He's great. Okay. He says this. Where was I? Yes. Yet this good world, which the Jewish people bless on the seventh day, is at the same time the world of sin and revolt against God. Its time is the time of humanity's exile And so the seventh day points beyond itself to a new Lord's day, the day of salvation and redemption. Interestingly, when Jesus announces his public ministry, he announces it on the Sabbath and he proclaims that it is the year of the Lord's favor. This was like the year of Jubilee, an entire year of Sabbath in the Jewish calendar And then Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The events of Holy Week that we celebrated last weekend remember Jesus' death on Good Friday, the sixth day of the week. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, Jesus rested. Having brought forth a new creation, he is united to it now, like the first Sabbath day once again. But then Jesus rises from the grave on the eighth day, and the first day of a new week. You could say it both ways, and Jewish contemporaries of Jesus actually did. On this eighth day and first day, Jesus rises from the dead and inaugurates a new creation of sorts, a new era. This day marks a departure from the frustrations and limitations of the time before Christ, and it celebrates the advent of the kingdom of God. So creation, including the creature of time, are transformed by the words radical union with the world that he created in the beginning. And the early church actually understood this. So while the Sabbath continued to have importance to Jewish followers of Jesus and didn't as much to the Gentiles, which created some cultural clashes that Paul spilled a lot of ink over, consult your New Testament. Followers of Jesus from all different cultural backgrounds practiced coming together on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first and eighth day of the week. And in those days the first day of the week wasn't was a work day. It was basically the equivalent of our Monday. Sunday didn't replace the Jewish Sabbath as the weekly day of rest until Constantine changed it in the 4th century. So Christians met on Sunday, the first day of the work week, as a testament to the new creation forged by the resurrection, and also practically to indicate how their faith in Christ meant active engagements with the world. Alexander Schmemann, our friend from a moment ago, explains its significance thus. He says, Sunday remained one of the days, the first day of the week, fully belonging to the world. Yet on the other hand, on that day, the day of the Lord was revealed and manifested in all its glory and transforming power as the end of this world and the beginning of the world to come. And thus through that day, all of time was transformed and given its true meaning. Christ's joining into creation and his healing work inside it have enacted a qualitative change in the fabric of our reality, such that the entirety of creation is now in the midst of being restored and reconciled to God. And as one part of that creation, and a special part in that we bear the image of God, humanity too finds unity and transformation in Christ. So, if you're following along in your Bible, switch over to Romans 6. And I'll be starting in verse 5. Starting in verse 5, Paul says this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that, the body, so that in the body of sin, sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here Paul is explaining that we are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Meaning that in a cosmic sense that when Jesus died, humanity united to Jesus died with him. And in Jesus' resurrection, humanity united to Jesus was resurrected as well, to the life of Christ, where corruption and sin and death no longer hold any power. Unity with Christ means that we can actually be said to have partaken in both his death and resurrection already. It's already been accomplished through our union with Christ, or perhaps better put Christ's union with us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul explains some of the implications of this. So if you'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll begin in verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ urges us, Paul and Timothy, on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we're ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So this union in death and resurrection is profound. We're first told that in Christ, the old reality of corruption and death has been broken. And we become participants in a new creation. And this participation is none other than following in Jesus' own footsteps announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God and the freedom and shalom peace that are available to all people through it. Making one and at peace and reconciling the many places of hatred and division and brokenness in our world. And we see at the end that our entry into this life of God is through none other than Jesus' own entry into our life he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Union is the ground for an exchange of realities where Christ takes on what is ours and heals it so that we can take on what is his and become who God made us to be, participants in the kingdom of Shalom. In his second letter... Peter mentions this results of unity in language that is truly profound. If we stop to think of it, he says in second Peter chapter one, verses three and four, Christ's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So that through them, you may escape from the corruption that is in the world and may become participants of the divine nature. We see that the consequence of Christ's unity with us and the exchange of Christ's reality with our own is that we are to become participants in the divine nature. Christ is the firstborn of many siblings, the new Adam, whose image we now bear, resurrected with him into life, life abundant. So if we continue to broaden our proverbial communion table and invite some other voices in, we'll find that our earliest forebears in the faith also dwelt heavily on the meaning of these things. So I'm going to introduce you to some new friends. Okay. Ha. And again, I got pictures, but wouldn't you know, uh, photography is a recent development, and so... <laughs> A lot of these friends have old iconographic pictures, right? Icons made from um, first and second centuries, but I'm pretty sure they were all using like one artist. So they might look kind of similar to each other, (laughs) which wasn't the point, but alas. Okay. So first we have Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Leon. So he lived from about 130 to 200 AD, He's the first writing theologian that we know of after the New Testament texts. So Irenaeus was was mentored by Polycarp of Smyrna, who himself was a disciple of the apostle John. And Irenaeus served as Bishop of Lyon. So he had the following to say of the incarnation. He says, Jesus passed through every stage of life, restoring to all communion with God, For it was fitting that he who was to destroy sin and redeem humanity under the power of death, that he should be made into the very same thing that humanity was, that is, human. Humanity had been drawn by sin into bondage and was held by death. So, sin should be destroyed by a human, and humanity go forth from death. God reinscribed in himself the ancient formation of humanity— that he might kill sin, deprive death of its power and vivify humanity, and his works are true. Irenaeus understood that because humanity was uniquely trapped in sin and corruption, that it would take a human being to exchange or undo or remedy this situation. But why? His answer is that because in becoming human, God joined human nature to God's own nature and knitted humanity inside God's own life, driving out sin and corruption and making new life possible. This is one primary way that Irenaeus and his contemporaries understood the mystery of the incarnation itself. Jesus was God and humanity joined such that humanity was freed from sin and united to God in new ways. This happened first in Jesus, the firstborn of many siblings. And then it happens in us as we are knit into Christ. Okay, another one. Okay. This is Tertullian of Carthage. So he lived from about 160 to 220 AD. He's a scholar and writer from Carthage in Roman North Africa and he's widely considered the first Latin and Western theologian. He says this, It would not fit Christ's purpose when bringing to nothing the sin of humanity to not do so in the form of humanity itself. By clothing himself with our humanity, he made it his own. And by making it his own, he made it non-sinful. another. See, and this is where they all had the same, they all have the same artists, but that's okay. Gregory of Nazianzus, he was writing a few centuries later than these ones I've spoken of a moment ago, but writing a few centuries later, he came to similar conclusions saying this. In the character of the form of a servant, he assumes a form that is not his own bearing all me and mine in himself, so that in himself he may consume the bad as the sun does the mist of the earth, and that I may partake in what is his through being conjoined to him. Using this understanding, Gregory concluded that the unassumed is the unhealed, but what is united to God is saved. And one more. This is Athanasius of Alexandria. Athanasius lived in the fourth century and was the bishop of Alexandria. He's one of the primary architects of the Trinitarian Nicene Creed, and he wrote extensively on the New Testament and on Christian doctrine. In his book on the incarnation, he says the following. Jesus takes that which is ours into himself and delivers it over to death. So that, on the one hand, with all dying in him, the law concerning corruption in human beings might be undone. Its power being fully expended in his body and no longer having any ground against similar human beings. And on the other hand, that just as human beings had turned to corruption, he might turn them again to incorruptibility and give them life from death. And being with all through his body, the incorruptible son of God consequently clothed all with incorruptibility. And now the very corruption of death no longer holds ground against human beings because of the indwelling word. And thus it happened that both things occurred in a paradoxical matter. The death of all was completed in Christ's body and also death and corruption themselves were destroyed in Christ's body. He did this to fill all things with the knowledge of himself, touching all parts of creation and freeing everything from every error. As Paul said, he's triumphed on the cross. So to briefly summarize, these early theologians understood that Jesus undoes the damage of sin in his humanity such that we can share in his redeemed and perfected humanity and walk in salvation ourselves, as he did. Jesus shares in our broken human nature so that we can share in his healed human nature and find unity with God. This exchange that Jesus accomplished took place throughout the entirety of his life. Each part of the human life that the word assumed in Jesus was in turn redeemed and given back to humanity in its intended form. This culminated in the crucifixion where God took death itself and undid its corruption on humanity. The crucifixion is humanity's brokenness. The resurrection, our intended purpose and end. To quote a contemporary theologian, the late Rachel Held Evans, we could not become like God So God became like us. God showed us how to heal instead of kill. How to mend instead of destroy. How to love instead of hate. And how to live instead of long for more. When we nailed God to a tree, God forgave. And when we buried God in the ground, God got up. Jesus shared in diseased humanity so that we might share in his healed humanity. And in this way, Jesus shows us who God is, and he also shows us who we are. I've tried to open space this morning for us to listen to other voices, to commune with our siblings and forebears in the faith who perhaps see things differently from us, Who might say things in a different way? Who might challenge us to try on a new perspective? Perhaps they bring us good news of Christ's unity with us and the renewal of all creation. Perhaps we can take comfort or courage in this news. Do we have eyes to see this newness all around us at every moment? Do we expect that we will be surprised to find the Spirit already at work wherever we turn? How do we imagine the work of the Spirit going forth and continually renewing all creation in ways that might shock and scandalize us? Are we walking in the kingdom all around us? Are we stewarding and tending creation? Are we caring for each other? Are we even listening to each other? It strikes me that the lives of those who follow Jesus as diverse as they are, are marked by a constant conversion, a constant repentance, a constant being made new. And when we speak of repentance, we mean a changing course, a renewal of mind. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that this is possible in our own introspection, changing and being made new happens in community with Christ and with one another. Our minds are renewed, our lives reconverted and our perspectives are challenged and deepened and widened when we sit down together and let ourselves be impacted by each other. Where our differences are not begrudged or considered an obstacle are celebrated and treated with seriousness and respect. Our imagination is expanded. Our eyes to see and ears to hear are opened when in humility we expect to meet Christ in each other, when we receive each other as gift. We need a broad table for this. We need each other's voices So that our minds don't just become echo chambers for our own self-assured certainties and self-righteousness. Is surprise, is repentance, change, metanoia, is this part of our walk with Christ? Do we expect this? Do we welcome it when it comes? It seems that the community of faithful that we've heard from today would say, yes, expect the unexpected. We should be surprised. We should change. How else could we receive the kingdom, the new humanity that Jesus has accomplished for us all? It strikes me that the people who were able to receive the news of the resurrection and see Jesus anew were those who were open to being changed, even open to the impossible among the many images of what Jesus' incarnation has accomplished, one that we've explored this morning is the renewal and rebirth of all creation and all humanity. And we're encouraged to remember and live in the reality of this newness and let it continually change us again and again. And perhaps doing so does not consist in trying to install silver linings around the pain of our lives or in trying to get another personal self-improvement project, or in trying to secure our own rightness. Perhaps the opportunity consists in simply watching for the breaking in of the kingdom that is already underway, and seeing the cracks in the walls of the world's brokenness and corruption and disease. Cracks that grow and threaten to break the wall into crumbling pieces. And seeing the tangled vines of the garden given at the beginning of all things and promised again to fill the earth and seeing these vines break through the cracks and take back their rightful place. And seeing this garden in each other and in expecting to find it in the most unexpected places. Let us pray. God, we thank you for coming to us and for being with us in ways that astound and comfort and perhaps even terrify at times. We thank you for what you've accomplished. We thank you for the peace and the power you give us in walking with you. God, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see your kingdom at work in the world and in each other. We pray that you would broaden our table and deepen our love for one another as we walk with you. Amen.